Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Sun. On tonight's episode, I will be discussing several cases, all of which are unsolved. The first one is a tragic unsolved murder of a young college student, and the second case is actually uh, a variety of different missing people that may or may not be connected in some way. But I just thought that the time frames and the similarities between some of the women and the actual connections between some of them kind of had me feeling a little bit suspicious. I would love to hear from you guys through the Facebook page or through email. Those are the best ways to reach me. I do have a Facebook group I created for it uh, forever ago. And it's not really active at all, but you can join it if you like, and we might make it active. So find that, and I look forward to hearing from you all. And lastly, I wanted to give a quick shout out to Alexis, who sent me a great email with a bunch of case suggestions, and one of them I'd actually never heard of, so I really appreciate that. Keep them coming. I can't find them all, because there's a lot that have just been kind of lost to time, so... I look forward to getting more suggestions from you guys. Thanks! First up, we have the unsolved murder of Sophie Sergi. She was a young college student who was murdered in a dorm building, packed with students, and no one saw or heard a thing. It happened over two decades ago and still has not been solved. There hasn't even been a single suspect. And as you will hear, the investigation was pretty fucked up from the start. Um, And it's just beyond tragic that her family hasn't received any sort of resolution. And I implore you to please share this episode, spread her story. Don't let her be forgotten. Thanks. Young women that are headed off to college in the year 2017 have just a huge variety of information at their disposal, much more than any previous generation. And as such, they're a lot more ready for what to expect on campus and living in the dorms. This is very true in regards to sexual assault on campuses. 
partly due to recent highly publicized sexual assault cases that have occurred on various campuses, which kind of just opened up the door to looking into the rape culture that exists on many, many college campuses. However, back in the 90s, college students probably had much more of a sense of safety being nestled in their comfortable dorm rooms. And what college could feel safer than one with a tiny enrollment of less than 10,000, located in a city of less than 30,000? Well, if that small town is Fairbanks, Alaska, it turns out that one might not be so safe after all. You see, one of the dirty little secrets about Alaska is the ridiculously high rate of sexual assault that occurs in our state. I found stats that say that nearly 40% of all Alaskan women have been the victim of some form of sexual assault. And on a recent Forbes list of the most dangerous cities in the US for women, Anchorage and Fairbanks took spots number two and three. In fact, Fairbanks sexual assault statistics are staggering. As of 2014 stats, the average rate throughout the US of sexual assault is 37 per every 100,000 people. Fairbanks, on the other hand, had an average of 120 per 100,000 people, over three times the national average. And I looked even a little bit further back around the start of the 2000s, and they were up towards 160, which is scary. I couldn't find specific stats for the 1990s in Fairbanks, but from what I could see, Fairbanks has followed the same trend for many years now of having one of the highest rates of sexual assault in the country. Sadly, a huge portion of these are being per perpetuated against Alaskan Native women. The rate of sexual assault being inflicted on Alaskan Native women is 2.5 times higher than the average for women in general. The reasoning behind this is complicated and hard to truly explain or pen down, but a lot of it is tied into alcohol and drug abuse, and in some cases, the small or non-existent amount of policing that occurs in many native villages. It isn't only in small towns, however. A huge proportion of the unsolved murders I came across were of Alaska natives, mostly women, and many of which occurred right in the big city of Anchorage. It's a sad but obvious realization that assaults and murders with minority victims never get the same attention as those with white victims. And this has become even more obvious in the last several years. You hear names like Natalie Holloway, John Benet. Everyone knows their faces and their stories. But what about the many, many, many women of color that were the victims of a murder that haven't been solved? We don't get to hear their stories, and it's very sad. Today I'm going to tell you a tragic story of a young Alaskan Native woman whose life was cut short much too soon, and whose murder still remains unsolved over 24 years later. This is a story of the unsolved murder of Sophie Sergi. In April of 1993, Sophie Sergi was a 20-year-old Yupik college student from the incredibly tiny Western Alaska CDP of Pitka's Point. 
Having grown up in a town of around 125 people, going off to the University of Alaska in Fairbanks must have been an exciting time. She had been studying marine biology on a full academic scholarship at the university, and she'd been there for a couple of years. However, that spring, she had actually taken the semester off. On the night of April 24th, she had flown back into Fairbanks because she had a dental appointment the next day and was planning to stay with a friend at Bartlett Hall in the UAF dorms. She arrived in town and was planning to stay the night there, so she met up with her friend that she knew from her hometown. They hung out for quite a while, talked, watched a movie, and then they parted ways. Sophie's friend left to go see her boyfriend, but told Sophie she could stay as long as she liked and make herself at home. Sophie was last seen out front of the dorm sometime around midnight, smoking a cigarette and chatting with a large group of people. The next morning, Sophie's friend came back to her dorm room to see that Sophie was gone and the bed did not look slept in. She had to hurry to class at the time, so she didn't really think too much about it, and it wasn't until much later that she realized something was up. Later that afternoon, around 2 p.m., a janitor pushed into a closed bathroom area in the community bathroom and found Sophie's partially clothed body. She had been sexually assaulted and shot right in the dorm bathroom. The janitor ran from the bathroom screaming in shock. Instantly, the campus was plunged into a state of fear. All the excitement of finals week and impending summer dissipated with the realization of what had happened among them while they slept. And while several people had been in and out of the bathroom all day, no one had yet to push open that stall door which led to a private bathtub. And Sophie had laid there for several hours, as many as 13. Her time of death was estimated between 1 to 5 a.m. Police showed up and began combing through the scene as best as possible and stayed at the dorm until late in the evening. However, they were pretty out of their element and had many things going against them. For one thing, it was finals week, and within a few days of Sophie's murder, most of the student body had left campus to start summer. Secondly, since Sophie had been discovered in a public space, it was incredibly hard to pin down witnesses, and the crime scene itself had been trod through by an unknown amount of people. However, they did have one thing going for them. The murderer had left his DNA behind. Later, the ineptitude of the investigation would be brought fully into the public light, and it would become known that not only had there not been a search of the entire dorm building at the time, but police had never questioned every single person that Sophie had been seen with outside. They had also not done much to secure the scene beyond the bathroom, and students were free to come and go out of the building as they pleased, many not even realizing that they may need to be questioned. If whomever the killer was had lived in the building, he was probably pretty easily able to leave and take the murder weapon with him. It was never found. The dorm building she had been found in was one in a group of three nestled together that housed nearly 700 students. So that's a lot of people to try to pin down. And nobody came forward with any information. No one had seen anything and no one had heard anything. 
despite the fact that she was apparently shot in a bathroom in the middle of a small dorm building. The day after the murder, the flag on campus was lowered to half staff in memory of Sophie, and the feeling of terror descended over the campus. For many of these young students, this was their first up-close experience with someone they know dying. And to have it happen so brutally and right in their comfort zone must have been beyond shocking. Hundreds came to a memorial for her that week, and many who were there during that time noticed that over the following years, campus had started to feel slightly different. While previously there had been a lighthearted, fun feeling, in the years to follow, campus started to feel just a little bit more subdued. Security tightened, and now there were escorts available for students that didn't want to walk across campus in the winter darkness alone. In the aftermath, some students wanted to name a rec hall after her. However, the initiative was vetoed by those who didn't want to be reminded of the tragedy whenever they saw the rec hall. They're selfish assholes. In 1994, Sophie's family sued UAF for not providing what they felt was adequate security. And during the lawsuit, many details of the crime became public knowledge, which further jeopardized the investigation, and the police were very unhappy with this. Years dragged on as police kept working the case. Some suspects came and went, and most were easily eliminated. Detectives speculated that this had been one of those rare stranger-on-stranger crimes, and Sophie had just been in the wrong place at the wrong time. As they kept working and getting nowhere, there was definitely a feeling among them that the suspect had likely left Fairbanks by now. In 2007, a cold case unit investigator named Jim Stogsdill, began working on Sophie's case. And it quickly became one of those cases that he just couldn't stop thinking about and felt determined to solve it. He would work on it for about eight years before the cold case unit was dissolved in 2015 due to state budget cuts. When he left, he felt awful that he wasn't able to solve it for Sophie's family. It was one that tugged at him out of the whole stack of unsolved crimes. The cold case unit walked away from that and 73 other unsolved cases. Between 2002 and 2015, the unit had solved nine Alaskan cold cases, one out-of-state case, and had closed nearly 30 others for various reasons. But Sophie's case was one that stood out and haunted them and still continues to haunt Fairbanks. A friend of mine started college there in 2002 and later went on to become a professor there. He said that it was newer policy to have visitors signed into the dorm buildings. Previously, when Sophie was there, they could come and go as they pleased. He also told me there was a lot of discussion on campus about how they historically had been reputed to poorly handle campus sexual assault cases. And they were making a concerted effort to adopt better policies. Anyone who has ever lived in college dorms knows it can be easy to feel sort of insulated from the real world and in your campus bubble. Basically, anything you need is right there, and it can be easy to feel completely safe knowing that there are RAs right down the hall to help you. However, that system failed Sophie. Someone either assaulted and shot her right in the bathroom, 
or murdered her somewhere else and managed to bring her to the bathroom without a single person seeing or hearing anything. That seems nearly impossible. At the time of her murder, the hall she was staying on was all female. However, there had definitely been times in the past when male visitors had snuck into the girls' bathroom to use it. So it might not have been completely out of the ordinary to see a guy leaving that bathroom. Whomever the murderer was, he had done it with a gun. So he may have planned to do some sort of violence that evening. Or maybe he was one of the many, many people that always carry, which is not very uncommon in Alaska. In 2009, investigators had determined that there was a huge possibility that Sophie had been killed elsewhere and left in the bathroom. If that was the case, there would have been a second crime scene, which they may have found if they'd actually shut down the dorm building and searched everywhere. They asked for any possible witnesses to come forward, but it doesn't appear that any further progress was made after this announcement. And in my humble opinion, I feel like if you were to murder someone somewhere else, unless it was your personal dorm room, it would be kind of hard to carry them down a public hall and dump them in a public bathroom. Just my thoughts. I would also bet that the killer had probably done this before, at least the sexual assault part. Maybe he got caught before and this time decided to make sure that that didn't happen. It might be worth looking into sex offenders that lived in the area at the time. It's very hard to ignore the racial aspect of this crime. It's hard to disagree with the fact that had Sophie been a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, rich girl, her face would have been splashed all over the news for years. We'd still be seeing it on every true crime show. There would be follow-ups, and it would be a mystery often discussed amongst true crime junkies. A girl gets murdered right in the middle of a dorm room, and no one hears a thing. That's basically a murder that's perfect for many, many long discussions. However, this didn't happen. I had never even heard of her until about a month ago. And I asked my friend who worked there what he knew about it, and he only vaguely knew what I was talking about and didn't remember any of the details. I don't think Sophie's case really got the attention it deserved, at least from the media. I know that the cold case unit was very devoted to this case, but I don't think the rest of the public was. And with the cold case unit now closed, it's hard to say if this case will ever be solved until the sick fuck who did this is caught for something else and there's a DNA match. I hope that day comes soon. Sophie is remembered by all who knew her as a highly intelligent and extremely friendly person with many, many friends. Her memory is still honored every year on campus. So for the second half of this episode, I'm going to be discussing the missing women of Anchorage. In the summer of 2003, two female torsos were found on mudflats 
at a coastal area that runs alongside the highway heading south out of Anchorage. The bodies were found two months apart and both were missing the head and their legs. The first body would be identified a year later through familial DNA. It was identified as Desiree Liganoff, a 22-year-old local woman who had last been seen in December 2001. The second body found was quickly identified through a tattoo. Detectives could tell it was a prison tattoo, so they showed pictures of it around Highland Correctional, which is a woman's prison, and it was recognized. The body was positively identified as Michelle Roth, age 32. Her family had seen her a few months prior to her body being found. Both women had ties to drugs and prostitution. Desiree had worked the streets since she was kicked out of her home as a young teenager. Michelle had gravitated towards that lifestyle a little later in life after getting caught up in drugs. Desiree had a few charges involving theft and forgery, as well as one charge of prostitution. I also found references to her having been a criminal informant for the police a few years prior to her death. She had also worked as a dancer at the Great Alaskan Bush Company at one time. Michelle had several misdemeanors involving theft and forgery, plus one felony charge of possession of a controlled substance. It doesn't really seem like much ever came out of these bodies being found. I'm not sure whether that is because of who they were or simply due to lack of evidence. But obviously, if they had been college girls, that shit would have been all over the news. And I remember that this was sort of barely covered. And even Googling around, I could only find a few articles, which is just sad. However, I found some other cases that could possibly be connected to these two. Between 1988 and 2002, I found several missing women cases that all involve women with known or alleged ties to drugs and prostitution. And though some might classify their lifestyles as high risk, it doesn't mean that they deserve to be murdered or that their cases should go almost immediately cold. I decided that these cases deserve some attention, and though... In a few of them, there isn't a whole lot of information. I decided to share the information I could find. And who knows? Maybe there's some connection between a few of them. I know that many of you love to dig into mysterious missing persons cases, so I'm interested to see if any of you can ferret out more details on any of these women. So the first missing woman is Robin Lynn Van Sickle who was 29. She went missing on an unknown date in 1988. She had worked as a dancer in Anchorage, possibly at the Great Alaskan Bush Company. It is said that she was involved in a cocaine bust, supposedly involving the cocaine cowboys, not long before going missing. I could not find any criminal record for her, so it's possible that she had a few other aliases. And in case you don't know, the Cocaine Cowboys is some obviously cocaine-related guys uh, out of Miami that were 
really big into drugs. And I saw that actually one of them just got caught after 26 years on the lam just a few months ago. So that's odd. Sandy Bennett is the next woman, and she was 41. She went missing November 4th, 1993. Her truck was found abandoned at a gas station. She was five foot three, 100 pounds, blonde, blue eyes. It is reported that she left a bar in Spinard, planning to drive out to the valley to buy drugs. She allegedly had several thousand dollars in cash on her when she went missing. It is also said that her boyfriend at the time was a cocaine dealer from New York. The next woman that went missing was Samantha Kent, and she also went missing in November of 1993. She was also a 5'3", 100-pound blonde, and at the time of her disappearance, she worked at PJ's, which was a local strip club and she was 24 when she went missing. Many years later, the owner of PJ's was indicted on charges of distributing cocaine. He actually revealed that he had been using the club as a front to sell coke, and some of his employees had been involved as well. He ended up forfeiting the club and serving one whole year of house arrest for this charge. He had run the bar since 1979, when his business partner was killed in a mysterious hit-and-run accident. Samantha was last seen at work, and her disappearance was considered suspicious, but absolutely no headway has been made on her case in the last 24 years. Tracy Denise Vicent was a 27-year-old who went missing June 14, 1995. She was five foot tall and 115 pounds. She had long brown hair. She was a mother of five, and she also had a few charges for prostitution. She was last seen at the apartment that she lived in with her boyfriend, who was also rumored to be her pimp. He allegedly waited two weeks to report her missing, stating that they'd had an argument and she had walked off and never come back. This guy had a very long rap sheet, including many drug charges and prostitution-related charges. Oddly enough, his brother-in-law was also a known associate of Sandy Bennett's boyfriend when she had gone missing two years prior. Less than a month after Tracy disappeared, 24-year-old Aaron Gilbert went missing 40 miles away in Girdwood. For more information on her case, you can check out the Unfound podcast episode about her, and it actually really digs deep and touches on a lot of other local bigwigs that might possibly be connected to some of these cases. The next woman that went missing was Kelly Sue Dunn. She was 29 at the time, and she went missing sometime in 1998, no specific date. She was 5'10", 160 pounds. She was a mother of two children, 
and has struggled with a drug addiction for years to both heroin and coke. She was allegedly a prostitute and was involved in several court cases involving domestic violence, both as petitioner and respondent. She had several aliases that she went by, including Nicole Erickson and Katrina Jordan. Information related to her disappearance is extremely scarce. Jerry Ann Brommels, age 49, disappeared April 20th, 2002. She was 5 foot 4, 130 pounds, with gray hair. She had a several misdemeanor charges and was also involved in a couple of domestic violence cases on both sides. Very, very little information is available regarding her disappearance, but police had mentioned her in relation to the unsolved torso murders, so it's possible that they knew she had connections to drugs and prostitution as well. As you can see, there are a lot of similarities between these women. And while I'm not trying to suggest there was a serial killer or anything, the similarities, at least between the two women whose bodies were found, cannot be denied. It's also worth noting that between 1988 and 2003, there were these six missing women in Anchorage, plus five more outliers, which are other women who went missing in the same time period, but didn't really have the same criminal ties as, the, as these ones did. And in almost the same length in time, between 2003 and 2017, there are only two unsolved disappearances of women in Anchorage. As for tonight, that's all I have for you right now. If any of you are interested in digging into any of these cases, I'd love to hear what you find. I'm in the process of helping people launch several other podcasts, launching my own, and I'll have another one I'm launching in about a month, so I'll keep you guys updated on when those are available on iTunes. The WTF Nature podcast is now available, and there's only one episode available at the moment though, uh, but it's basically the polar opposite of this. It's a comedy unscripted about weird animals, so give it a listen if you'd like. Until next time, bye. Hey, what's up everybody? This is Joey Galvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg but their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment, action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one. All you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the Department of Metahuman Affairs or DMA and check it out right now.